The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to Career Day on the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and the lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. But before we get started, joining us for Career Day is Mark Everett. Mark is a senior revenue marketing coach at the Pedowitz Group, which is a firm that helps business operationalize accountability, manage digital transformations, and customer experiences through a operational process they call revenue marketing. Prior to his current role, Mark has served at a variety of different roles spanning from being an in-house marketer for consumer brands, all the way through working as the VP of Marketing and PR for the Special Olympics and now onto his current role at the Pedowitz Group. Mark's had a fair amount of different stops and a collection of interesting roles, so we're excited to have him here to talk about how he has managed his career. Here is our interview with Senior Revenue Marketing Coach at the Pedowitz Group, Mark Everts. Mark, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thanks so much, Ben. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here. And the reason why I reached out originally is I was looking through your LinkedIn profile and you have a kind of an interesting collection of career experiences that has gone B2B to B2C, in-house agencies. And like I mentioned in the intro, you worked for nonprofits, the Special Olympics. So I'd love to hear about your career journey. And let's just start off by talking about how you got into marketing in the first place. Well, thanks again. And For me, getting into marketing, it was by accident and by almost a dare. Someone in a PR and marketing firm that I interviewed with straight out of college said that my journalism background wouldn't translate. Apparently, I needed to learn to lie more or something. I'm not quite sure. So it was that that spurred me on. I'm one that doesn't like to be told I can't do something. So I usually kind of put my head down and go for it. And the other was in terms of B2B marketing, a good friend of mine worked for a financial technology firm and said, all of our engineers are writing our web copy. You speak human. Can you get in here and help these guys out? And from that point forward, I became a B2B marketer. So someone told you that your journalism background wasn't as useful as you'd like it to be and that you should try marketing and without actually thinking that writing and copy creation was an important part of marketing. I mean, and that's the way I took it. Keep in mind, I was probably 23 years old and took umbrage at a lot of things. I've mellowed out a lot since then. But (laughs) the way it came off was, well, that's a different style of writing. And the way I interpreted it was 
facts aren't important here, but I came to learn, and it's kind of the connecting tissue across all the places that I've been, that gathering information, asking questions, not taking the first answer or getting it validated from other people is actually really quite useful, whether it was in a client-side role at a firm or whether it was working in agencies. I kind of became the default company journalist. So touche on that guy that said I couldn't hack it. <laughs> yeah, you showed him and now you're on a podcast telling everybody about it. <laughs> I'd ask if you want to drop his name, but I'm not sure exactly what counts as slander these days. <laughs> you know what? It was the blind rage. So I just kind of went red on that one and just moved forward. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure he's fine and doing well and good luck to him. So you were in college working in journalism and early on your career focused on writing when you made the transition into marketing, what was the role and what was your responsibility? The first one was actually working in marketing, writing, and PR for a community college. The cool thing about that was, is it was basically giving people that were really high-minded on a higher education being that traditional four-year university and making a good case for people going to a two-year school to get a lot of the stuff out of the way or using it as an opportunity to become a little bit more skilled in their current job. And I got to tell stories. So it was really, I just took the journalistic mindset and pretty much evangelized the value of that college, which then moved me into places like the Special Olympics, where I became kind of an evangelist for human beings and treating them with inclusiveness. So it, like I said earlier, it sort of made the connective tissue of becoming that fact finder and storyteller for different organizations. And then that's pretty much been the way I've matriculated through most of my jobs. I do want to hear about the role at the Special Olympics, but I noticed that before you got to the Special Olympics, you had a stop at Xerox. And this was in the mid 2000s when Xerox was still very much a powerhouse in the technology industry. Having gone from working in a marketing role where you're promoting advertising to a company like Xerox, what did you learn through that transition? The question brings up a lot of different answers that flood to my mind. I learned that primarily the big corporate gray wall structure is definitely not for me. I found myself having to fight a lot uphill and that ideas and innovation weren't necessarily valued. In fact, they were kind of stonewalled. But that also could be a little bit of a personality conflict. I was super opinionated at that time, and I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing, and other people were telling me that I couldn't. And again, the streak through most of my employment career, and I think one of the main reasons I bounced around is that finding your fit was super important. Xerox definitely wasn't, and I moved on. As you'll notice, the tenure wasn't very long there, but I met a lot of really great people, a lot of very smart people, but Big environments don't allow for a lot of flexibility or flexible thinking. So, I want to riff for a second on the difference between being at a big company and being at a small company, because I think it's one of the most interesting decisions for someone specifically early in their career. I'll preface this with I'm working on a second podcast focusing on helping people that are entering the career market understand what some of the trade-offs they make with their first role and how to become a valuable member of the working world. And there's two schools of thought. There is go work for a small company and get lots of diverse experience and go figure out how to do things on your own. 
versus go to a big company where you're going to have training, you're going to be able to specialize, and you're going to be able to grow your network quickly. I bounced around a lot early in my career and got a tremendous amount of value from going to eBay, which was a 13,000 person company at the time. It helped me build a network. It gave me an entrance into the technology field. And it also allowed me to build some really great specialized tangible skills that I rely on throughout the rest of my career. But being at a big company wasn't for me. And I went smaller from there. Tell me about your experience and how did you learn what the right mix was for you in terms of company size, in terms of roles, responsibilities? What I learned through trial and error and a little bit of pain and some bruising was that it didn't matter if the company was large, but if it had a mission that was outside of just pimping product. And by that, I mean, if you are a large company that is doing something transformative, in an industry. Like I was a part of a company that was doing that in the financial services industry, kind of a precursor to internet banking. And if you can get everybody behind the idea that you're doing something that is actually going to make somebody else's life better. For me, the size of company hasn't really mattered. It's just more the entrenched leadership that sort of puts kind of a ceiling on things and doesn't accept ideas from outside the mahogany row. Yeah, it's interesting. And Mahogany Row is there because it's a successful model where you're building structure and allowing people to work within a guidelines and you get everybody rowing the same direction. And as long as you've picked the right direction, generally it's pretty effective, even if it's slow moving. And then there is fast, nimble and diverse, which means you can always go off course. I do think that there's a trade-off between all those things. And let's keep that in mind as we continue talking about your career development. Tell me a little bit about the Special Olympics role. That's the one that really stuck out to me as the most maybe interesting in title of your career stops. How did you land a job working at the Special Olympics and what were you doing? Well, that's one thing that you learn pretty earlier, or I did, and it was prior to even LinkedIn existing, was the value of a network. And I had a lot of connections at large corporations, Nike in particular, since I'm living in Oregon. And one of them was a longstanding board chair for the organization. And she introduced me, said that I would be good and a vibrant communicator for the organization and that I'm mission focused on things. So that's really what started my tour there. It was just getting really behind the idea of equitable and fair treatment of all humans, despite any sort of challenges that they may have. And in fact, we all have challenges. So it was sort of a natural fit in terms of mission and where my head was at. And I learned a ton. And I think where I probably could have learned more was understanding the mission has to be followed by the ability to capture revenue and funding. And sometimes my altruistic nature kind of pushed the organization in places that maybe it didn't want to head to. But it was a fun experience. And I met a lot of really wonderful people there. It's interesting when I'm looking through your career experience and some of your titles, not only is the Special Olympics, I think it's the only or one of the only non-for-profits, but it's also the first time that you were the VP of marketing. So I'm interpreting that as it was one of the first times that you were really in a leadership role. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, the one thing that I found myself in, it was never really by title. That's one thing I learned is that title doesn't necessarily dictate everything. What I found in my career is given that I was a person that could capture a lot of information quickly, I found myself in kind of that unnamed role of 
the chief of staff or whoever was leading the company. So like as an example, there's a company called Metaphor that was doing consulting for the forest products industry and people on the environmental side of that equation and getting them to talk and play nicely together and figure out kind of equitable solutions for being more sustainable as a business. And doing that work, the CEO relied on me to do a lot of different things, but it was communications director, I think is what he called me. So I led by example, but I also found myself pretty early in my career having to mentor up a lot of people. So I think that served me really well to date is just being that player coach. I love getting my hands dirty, but if I can help somebody else out of a tough spot, whether that's client or a coworker, I'm all over it. So I understand having an informal management style that people gravitate to, whether you're helping people stay organized, you're moving the organization generally in the right direction. When you first had the executive or leadership or seniority within an organization, how did that affect how you looked at your responsibilities and how you worked with some of the people that you were potentially informally managing? Well, I'd be lying if I didn't experience a little bit of the imposter syndrome. So you walk in, you work hard, you attain both age and work experience. And then somebody says, you've managed to ascend to the height of this title. And you're going, well, really? Am I sure? So there was some self-doubt there. But I think once I got into those positions and actually did the work and wasn't just the Don Draper of the company, like, oh, and I'm just going to delegate everything and tell everybody that it's a carousel and have them dazzle me with all their hard work while I go hit the bar. I always kind of played it as my leadership role meant that I had to lead by the ability and willingness to cover ground with them and not just march people in order. Yeah. Being a manager from the trenches. Right. And I mean, I've had actually other employers that saying, hey, you're dipping down too low. So I guess it just depends on who you have as your CEO or your boss above and if they appreciate that or if they want my hands out of it. I think the older that you get and the smarter that this current generation becomes, it's probably better that I learn how to delegate more instead of trying to get my hands in there and potentially muck it up. But early in my career, it was from the trenches for sure. So tell me about the transition. You're now sort of in the beginning of being an organizational leader. You have some leadership experience and you're working in a not-for-profit and you actually take an interesting turn. What happens next after you leave the Special Olympics? So if I remember correctly, my next role was at Tripwire, which is an IT security firm that works in things like configuration management and hopefully reducing breaches out there for that everybody's become very familiar with. Pretty dramatically different from the Special Olympics. Yeah. And I leaned on the tech background that I had, and I think this gets back to network. I had some friends who I'd worked with at Carillion, the fintech company. And then the next thing I know, it was kind of a similar role but in the information security space. So network was everything, but I walked in super flat-footed. I knew nothing about it. I knew very little other than it was incredibly intricate, but I've always appreciated the challenge. So the first thing I did was I started taking coursework and getting certified and at least understanding both the plight of the user and the challenges that they had to overcome in the marketplace. So I got smart, interviewed a lot of people, took courses, and by the time I was smart enough to go, they decided to, I think it was an equity firm that ended up purchasing them and ended up kind of scaling things down. And since I was the lower man on the totem pole, I had to kind of exit the building. But I can tell you, it was a really fascinating 
short stint and it found me back on the market again, which I think is probably the next jump into the next role. The marketer is always the first one to go. So everyone listening, just it'll be okay. If you can tell anybody anything about that, it is. You can't take this stuff personally. I've gotten a lot of dents and and have taken it personally, and it does nothing but wear you out. And your next opportunity is right around the corner. And then definitely lean on your network. I think that there's also different reasons for leaving a company, obviously. And in this case, you were part of a reduction in force where whether it's a merger or private equity acquisition, there is two people doing the same role. They're only going to keep one. It stinks that you were the last guy hired, but that is not necessarily an indication of what happened with your performance. There are other roles where sometimes the relationship works. Sometimes you make bad strategic decisions and, you know, sometimes you have to wear it and it is your fault while you're leaving an organization. I've been in that scenario. I think it happens to everybody during their career. It's always hard to leave an organization, but the reason why can help you rationalize it as well. Sure. The one thing that I would ask, actually, from your perspective, I'm seeing a complete shift in how held to people are on their resumes or time and their jobs. It used to be, and back in those days, people would look at that and it was definitely a mark against, you know, wow, this guy's jumping around. He's super flaky. And that was just the immediate interpretation. But I'm seeing people today that are just not tolerant of bad situations, which I think is way healthier. So I'm just wondering if you've seen kind of that similar lack of, I guess, attention to time and job and if jumping around and landing well is maybe the new place that we're facing. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that there are a few different trends. I work in or with relatively early stage companies. So when a company is new and developing, it transitions so fast that a lot of the times the needs for the people running departments change, right? You need a scrappy, hungry growth marketer who's going to run a bunch of tests and just figure out how to get some people in the door so you can get some data when you're an early stage startup. And a lot of time that's just brute force, man hours, and cheap labor, as opposed to when you're a growth stage company, you need a little bit more of a process and strategy to be able to manage a larger workforce. So With early stage companies like the environment that I live in, in Startupville near San Francisco or in Silicon Valley, the early stage company roles last one to two years a lot of the time. And if you happen to catch the long train, you're looking at a four-year stint in a company if you can get from early stage to growth. Mm -hmm. I also think that there is more of a trend for people to want to freelance. That's sort of the direction that I've taken. So the notion of being an employee and being there full time forever and getting a gold watch when you're relatively early or in the middle of your career, I think it's less enticing for people because it's just so much easier to find a higher volume of work. And maybe that's just my environment. The third thing is it matters where you are in your career. If you are a senior exec at a publicly traded company and you are there for six months and they're paying you millions of dollars, it's something went wrong and that might be a reason for a question. If you are a just out of college student and you stay in your first job for nine months and then decide that you want to go travel the world for a year, I don't think those two are necessarily the same. So it's obviously different for everyone. I think at the end of the day, what matters is that you can spin what happened in your career into an intelligible story. Being able to say why and be honest about what happened in a role that caused you to want to leave or caused you to not be an organizational fit and wrap that into why the next role that you're looking for is going to be a good fit. That's super good advice. Yeah, I think we're totally aligned there. 
So you went from this not-for-profit to a very technical role working in security, and then you made a shift at some point going into professional services and agency-type work. Tell me about why you made that transition. Well, sometimes those transitions get made for you. At that point, after the tripwire stint, you find yourself looking for a job. And I had a wife and a young son at the time, and it was really like, okay, what can I do and where can I go? And I had, again, some friends in an agency called Babcock and Jenkins, who suggested that I would be a good senior writer for some of the client work they were doing, particularly in this case, client work for some financial services clients. So it's weird when you get in those situations and all the things that you've stitched together previously kind of fall into a job that you land. It's like I walked in there going, oh yeah, I know how to speak to these people. I know what they're looking for. I know valuable ways that they choose to be engaged with and the things that they want to buy. So that was a good fit. And I went through that situation for several years and then sort of cut my teeth on this idea of behavioral communications and understanding why and how people do things and trying to meet them where they are rather than the old model of companies hammering them with product information and expecting them to sort of relent at some point or just cave in because of the onslaught. I cut my teeth on getting people to actually give a crap about what you're giving them and helping them solve a problem. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then, and instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. So talk to me a little bit about that creative process where you're talking about creating copy that is mission-driven as opposed to being product-driven. And it seems like you're doing a lot of this in the B2B space. Why is the being mission-forward important? For me, it's a little bit self-interested. I don't know if I could get it really excited about it if I wasn't able to go, oh, wow, you're in a really tough spot. That sucks. Let's get you out of that. That's my mission. But I think what you've seen, and I'm certainly not the first to spin thinking that way, there's a lot of really smart luminaries that 
realized pretty early in this that product-centric marketing is a good way to get turned off. So personally, it was just figuring out where someone was having trouble. And if I could help, if I could get them out of that ditch, that's what I was going to do. And in many cases, if you're working for a company, and I'll use Tripwire as an example, an IT security company, and you're talking to somebody that sysadmin or even a CISO at those companies and going, hey, wow, you just got breached. That's a job killer. If you did manage to survive, let's make sure that you've got things in your arsenal that can lessen that risk the next time around. So I kind of always took it as my mission to help someone out. And I've worked with companies like Epson and SunPower for solar panels and a bunch of other companies in Oregon and all over the country. And it's really the same order of business for me. What's going on? Why does it hurt? Let's get that away and figure out how we can get to you to the people that actually want to hear your story. So you're talking about what I would call human-centric marketing. Have you seen the TED Talk or it's a YouTube video, Start With Why by Simon Sinek? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's like the Bible. In fact, the last couple of positions that I've held, it's funny how I keep getting reintroduced to it from CEOs of different agencies that I've worked for. It became sort of the marching orders in a good way for how we should be as a given agency, starting with our why, and by default, educating our clients in a similar fashion to get them to think about why they exist and what they actually do instead of build things or provide services. What's their reason for being? So for those of you listening who are unfamiliar with the concept that we're talking about, there's a video on YouTube. You can search for Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, or you could just, I think his website is startwithwhy.com. But the general principle of what we're talking about is that great companies answer the question why they're doing what they're doing first. So everything is very much mission-driven about why does the problem you're solving need attention? And then you get to answering how are you going to do that, what your approach is, and then last you talk about what you're producing as opposed to starting with here's the thing that we make and we'll work our way back into why we're making it. And having this mission-driven approach makes your company more relatable and it keeps all of your tone and voice aligned. It's one of my favorite pieces on the internet. So if you have, I think it's like a, there's probably a short version of the video for about five minutes. It's totally worth listening to. And Mark, it sounds like you and I have a very similar approach to brand building and tone and consistency, which is start with the why you're doing that. And that ends up being a very human centric approach of figuring out what the problem is for the customers and then match what your mission is against that. Right. And while I totally agree with that, I have seen people take advantage of that thinking and becoming self-centric, right? So as an example, it is about why do you exist? Well, I exist to do this. It still becomes very company specific. What I try and do is figure out the problem that I'm solving for the customers or the potential customers that are out there. Going so far as to even put my journalism hat back on and interviewing as many customers as I can get my hand on to figure out why they do what they do. It's not so much a company's mission, because if you think about it, as marketers, we become pretty self-centric. Well, we need this, or we believe we want to be more human-centric, so we need to figure out our why. That's great, but the why is really better if you're talking about it with the people that would potentially buy to figure out if there is actually a place for your product, if they actually do engage or want to engage in this way or that way. So I think people took Simon's thinking and didn't entirely follow through with the intent of being more humanistic. 
Yeah, I think that keeping your customers' needs and understanding of who they are front and center is great advice. And that understanding who you are is only half of the battle. It's really also about being able to match who you are with a customer base that needs what you're able to produce for them to solve a specific problem. It's the old, why do I care? And the why do I care comes from the customer side. You know, I also had a journalism professor who was a little bit militaristic in his approach, and he would challenge everything that came out of our pie holes. How do you know that? Are you sure? Why do you think that? And it sort of led me into applying it in the marketing side of things. Because when we get in conference rooms, us marketers can act like we have all the answers. Well, it's because of this, because we talked to a couple of salespeople. Therefore, we're absolutely positive this is how this will go down. Uh, maybe, maybe not. So I've been a advocate of getting out of the conference room and not taking that initial conventional wisdom as possible. Great advice. Tell me a little bit about, as we talk about the development of your career, you entering into agencies, you've built a process for what I would call brand development, very human-centric. I've talked about Simon Sinek. And now you're in a role that is focused on revenue generation. Your title is the Senior Revenue Marketing Coach. What does that mean and what do you do? Well, at the moment, it's consuming a lot of information and understanding some deep processes that the Petowitz Group have managed to cultivate over the course of the last decade plus that they've been around. So I just started the position, but I can tell you why I was hired and what I think they want me to be able to do in the very near future. And that is help salespeople sell more and help marketing understand how that they can make that happen through the marriage of whether it's technology solutions wrapped in processes and the people that know how to run it all. Pedowitz Group is one that sort of helps one assess where people are in that magic triangle and then either support additional services or people to a given challenge and help them make sure that the technology that they've purchased is actually doing what they wanted it to do. So the revenue part is really, I'll say maybe over the course of the last five years, with the birth of marketing automation, there was a common belief that if you bought marketing automation and you synced it with your CRM, it would just magically poop money out and people would be eternally happy. And that dream has long since died and it requires some vigilance, some dedication and really marketing and sales agreement on when am I supposed to follow up on this lead and make it consistent every single time, making the leads themselves very easy to identify and how they get routed through a system of technology and humans to then hopefully close at the end of the day. So my job as it's defined is helping people make sure that all of the people and the processes and the technology are working in concert to make that happen. And then given some of the communications and some of the campaign creation stuff that I've done, help them make that real in a market-facing way. So how are we helping people go from seemingly unaware of either a problem or a solution that they're seeking and coach them through to the end that go, yeah, this looks like a place that I want to hang my hat. So it's a fun job. You mentioned a triangle for revenue generation that you're coaching people through, and it's related to the people, the process, and the technology. And an example that you mentioned is tying a CRM to a marketing automation system does not poop money. It requires people to take the leads, evaluate them, and contact them. 
and the people poop the money. <laughs> well, you had Scott Brink around, right? And he's one of the smartest guys I know in the whole MarTech space. Please don't call Scott a money pooper. I really want to continue our relationship with <laughs> no, him. <laughs> in fact, I think he's the ultimate BS killer. He's a truth teller in the industry. And I think that what he's showing the world is that there's, what is it now? Like almost 7,000 pieces of marketing technology. There's a lot. That do any number of things and... It's understanding which ones you actually need based on the objectives that you have. And if the company knows what they want to do, they can decide what they want to buy. And hopefully they can hire people that know how to run it and how to create processes and handoffs between it. If you're starting from, I got a new toy I have to buy, you're going to crash into the rocks pretty quick. And I've seen it. In fact, the agencies that I've worked for, the last three of them, usually what would happen is we would get the bat phone phone call that says, I bought this thing six months ago. I don't know how it works. And my boss is asking me how it's going. And those would be the start of service engagements for a lot of the larger companies that I've worked for. That's the agency owner has the cha-ching soundtrack in the back of his mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for any company that's out there, if they understand what they want to do, they have people that can help them do it and understand the technology that will need to be deployed and connected. If they understand all of those things first, then you go shopping. And it was true in the IT security space too. It was FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So the marketing industry itself in those environments created a lot of fear. Hey, if you don't do this, boy, you're going to get left by the wayside. And then uncertainty, well, what happens? What should I do next? And then obviously doubt. Okay, well, should I or shouldn't I? And MarTech is no different. But you have to start with objective and strategy first. As you're talking about your strategy for doing marketing and revenue coaching, and I look back over your career, the central theme to me that you've really held on to as you've bounced around a variety of different roles, or maybe bounced isn't the right word, where as you worked your way towards the role that seems to be the best fit for you. Bounce is fine, and it's actually technically accurate. The truth is bounce has a negative connotation. And we talked about this where somebody early on in my career, I was applying for a job at Crate and Barrel and it was like my second job out of college and I wanted to be in the marketing team and I'd worked in sales and moved around the country a little bit as part of my role. And on my resume, it's like I worked in Boston for six months and Orange County for a year and Dallas for six months. So I have two years of career experience. And the lady looked at me and says, no, we don't want you. You're a career hopper. <laughs> How she said that after having one job that moved me three times, I have no idea. But the idea that you are bouncing from one place to another and you can't stay in one place is different than you had an intuitive path that you were following. You were trying to find the right fit for you. I'd be lying to you if I said it was intuitive, but I will say that it was figuring out as quickly as possible where I could have the greatest impact or in the other case where I would be crashing into things and creating suffering. See, to me, that is more relying on intuition <laughs> than having a strategic career path. You did not say, I need to work for a big company as a marketing manager to get a growth company VP job to be equipped to be a founder in 10 years. You were not as prescribed. And this is what I've done. So take it with a grain of salt. And it's very much like, here's where I am now. I'm going to go find what I feel is right next and not have a prescribed career path. 
I actually started initially in journalism. I was going to take the bull by the horns, so to speak, and head to New York and become a journalist at Rolling Stone or Entertainment Weekly. And I had all sorts of connections and then got nowhere and then started working in local newspapers. So I quickly learned, and it was mostly through my father's prodding, you know, it was kind of that old school, you better get a job or you're going to be out on the street. You got six months. So it was kind of that tough love moment where I had to pay him rent. And I was motivated by fear mostly to get my butt moving and land somewhere that would be willing to pay me for what I do. Yeah, I think and I mentioned the Finding Your First Job podcast. We don't actually have a title yet, but with the person that I'm working on that who is still in college, some of the advice that I've given was it doesn't matter what you do first, just get some experience. Big or small, you're going to get value out of it. Just get started. Go pick a path. And you can bounce around early in your career with limited repercussions. As you get older, it gets a little harder. You need to be able to tell the story a little bit better. For sure. With that said, as you look back on your career and you think about that central theme of the human-centric storytelling component and how you've developed that into understanding marketing, and now you're doing that to help companies not only understand what their narrative is, but how their process and the technology work together, what advice do you have for people that are starting their careers that are early on, and how do you reflect on how you've landed where you are today? It's going to sound so totally Tony Robbins, but I actually mean it. And that is just find something that you're passionate about or figure out how to become passionate at seemingly dispassionate things. I was working in agency environments and even on corporate side places where it was a widget. Like, how am I going to get behind this? Well, somebody is using that widget to fix something that is vital. Get behind and get passionate about like, hey, that guy needs your help help make the case to him in a way that is useful and not just laden with buzzwords and gimmickry to get him to engage. Actually mean it. And I think that's what served me well, is not really tolerating a lot of self-congratulatory BS and just going like, really, what are we trying to help? What are we trying to solve? And if I can help someone, like I said, get out of a jam personally or professionally, that's what gets me up every day. I think that's great advice. And one of the biggest thing that sticks out to me as you talk about your career path and the idea of being passionate about something, I'm an avid sports fan and I love music as well. And I've dabbled in working in both of them throughout my career. The underlying function of your career does not have to be a personal passion. There's lots of people that work in B2B marketing, that work in agencies, that sell widgets and work for the garbage company, and they are not necessarily passionate about the trash, right? Or the, the B2B or the technology. What they're passionate about is helping a specific user group solve a problem. And to me, I think that that's where your drive and your level of interest, once you get engaged in a specific area and you start to learn it, you can really make an impact for a lot of people's lives. And that's one of the gratifying parts of business for me. Totally agree. In fact, the biggest accomplishment that I can say in my personal career is that I've gotten people promoted. <laughs> and none of the people that I've worked with ultimately got fired. So those are the things that motivate, right? It's like, I helped a person go from kind of a second class citizen as a marketer. Wow, oh, we're sales led. Marketing is just a cost center. I've gone from having those people be seen as kind of afterthoughts or drains on the company pie to, wow, this guy is really helping me identify and close leads 
at a faster pace than I was able to do without it. I was like, awesome. Those things are pretty motivating for me. Yeah. There's lots of different motivating factors. And it sounds like you've had a lot of diverse experience and we really appreciate you sharing it with us today. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Mark Everts for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Mark, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send him a tweet at Mark A. Everts. That's M-A-R-K-A-E-V-E-R-T-Z. Or you could visit his company's website, which is Pedowitz Group, P-E-D-O-W-I-T-Z group.com. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thank you for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we created benjshap.com slash question, where you can ask us your marketing questions that we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media as well. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, pretty much on every social network. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got some great episodes lined up over the next couple weeks. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed next week. Okay, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.